Welcome to the 3ABN Australia Radio Book Reading Program. The Desire of Ages, written by Ellen White, is an inspirational account of the life and ministry of Jesus. What you are about to hear is a dramatized audio version of this book, created by Nancy Hamilton Myers. To download your free copy, visit thedesireofagesproject.com. Listen now as Nancy continues to read from The Desire of Ages. The Desire of Ages, Chapter 65, The Temple Cleansed Again. At the beginning of his ministry, Christ had driven from the temple those who defiled it by their unholy traffic, and his stern and godlike demeanor had struck terror to the hearts of the scheming traders. At the close of his mission, he came again to the temple and found it still desecrated as before. The condition of things was even worse than before. The outer court of the temple was like a vast cattle yard, with the cries of the animals and the sharp clinking of coin was mingled the sound of angry altercation between traffickers, and among them were heard the voices of men in sacred office. The dignitaries of the temple were themselves engaged in buying and selling and the exchange of money. So completely were they controlled by their greed of gain that in the sight of God they were no better than thieves. Little did the priests and rulers realize the solemnity of the work which it was theirs to perform. At every Passover and Feast of Tabernacles, thousands of animals were slain, and their blood was caught by the priests and poured upon the altar. The Jews had become familiar with the offering of blood and had almost lost sight of the fact that it was sin which made necessary all this shedding of the blood of beasts. They did not discern that it prefigured the blood of God's dear Son, which was to be shed for the life of the world, and that by the offering of sacrifices, men were to be directed to a crucified Redeemer. Jesus looked upon the innocent victims of sacrifice and saw how the Jews had made these great convocations, scenes of bloodshed and cruelty. In place of humble repentance of sin, they had multiplied the sacrifice of beasts as if God could be honored by a heartless service. The priests and rulers had hardened their hearts through selfishness and avarice. The very symbols pointing to the Lamb of God, they had made a means of getting gain. Thus in the eyes of the people, the sacredness of the sacrificial service had been in a great measure destroyed. The indignation of Jesus was stirred. He knew that his blood, so soon to be shed for the sins of the world, would be as little appreciated by the priests and elders as was the blood of beasts which they kept incessantly flowing. Against these practices Christ had spoken through the prophets. Samuel had said, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to hearken than the fat of rams. And Isaiah, seeing in prophetic vision the apostasy of the Jews, addressed them as rulers of Sodom and Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, ye rulers of Sodom. Give ear unto the law of our God, ye people of Gomorrah. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me, saith the Lord? 
I am full of the burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts, and I delight not in the blood of bullocks or of lambs or of he goats. When ye come to appear before me, who hath required this at your hand to tread my courts? Wash you, make you clean, put away the evil of your doing from before mine eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do well, seek judgment. Relieve the oppressed, judge the fatherless, plead for the widow. He who had himself given these prophecies, now for the last time, repeated the warning. In fulfillment of prophecy, the people had proclaimed Jesus king of Israel. He had received their homage and accepted the office of king. In this character, he must act. He knew that his efforts to reform a corrupt priesthood would be in vain. Nevertheless, his work must be done. To an unbelieving people, the evidence of his divine mission must be given. Again, the piercing look of Jesus swept over the desecrated court of the temple. All eyes were turned toward him. Priest and ruler, Pharisee and Gentile, looked with astonishment and awe upon him who stood before them with the majesty of heaven's king. Divinity flashed through humanity, investing Christ with a dignity and glory he had never manifested before. Those standing nearest him drew as far away as the crowd would permit. Except for a few of his disciples, the Saviour stood alone. Every sound was hushed. The deep silence seemed unbearable. Christ spoke with a power that swayed the people like a mighty tempest. It is written. My house shall be called the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. His voice sounded like a trumpet through the temple. The displeasure of his countenance seemed like consuming fire. With authority, he commanded, Take these things hence. Three years before, the rulers of the temple had been ashamed of their flight before the command of Jesus. They had since wondered at their own fears and their unquestioning obedience to a single humble man. They had felt that it was impossible for their undignified surrender to be repeated. Yet they were now more terrified than before and in greater haste to obey his command. There were none who dared question his authority. Priests and traders fled from his presence, driving their cattle before them. On the way from the temple, they were met by a throng who came with their sick, inquiring for the great healer. The report given by the fleeing people caused some of these to turn back. They feared to meet one so powerful, whose very look had driven the priests and rulers from his presence. But a large number pressed through the hurrying crowd, eager to reach him who was their only hope. When the multitude fled from the temple, many had remained behind. These were now joined by the newcomers. Again the temple court was filled by the sick and the dying, and once more Jesus ministered to them. After a season, the priests and rulers ventured back to the temple. When the panic had abated, they were seized with anxiety to know what would be the next movement of Jesus. 
They expected him to take the throne of David. Quietly returning to the temple, they heard the voices of men, women, and children praising God. Upon entering, they stood transfixed before the wonderful scene. They saw the sick healed, the blind restored to sight, and deaf received their hearing, and the crippled leaped for joy. The children were foremost in the rejoicing. Jesus had healed their maladies. He had clasped them in his arms, received their kisses of grateful affection, and some of them had fallen asleep upon his breast as he was teaching the people. Now, with glad voices, the children sounded his praise. They repeated the hosannas of the day before and waved palm branches triumphantly before the Savior. The temple echoed and re-echoed with their acclamations. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation. Hosanna to the son of David. The sound of these happy, unrestrained voices was an offense to the rulers of the temple. They set about putting a stop to such demonstrations. They represented to the people that the house of God was desecrated by the feet of the children and the shouts of rejoicing. Finding that their words made no impression on the people, the rulers appealed to Christ. Hearest thou what these say? And Jesus saith unto them, Yea, have ye never read out of the mouth of babes and sucklings thou hast perfected praise? Prophecy had foretold that Christ should be proclaimed as king, and that word must be fulfilled. The priests and rulers of Israel refused to herald his glory, and God moved upon the children to be his witnesses. Had the voices of the children been silent, the very pillars of the temple would have sounded the Savior's praise. The Pharisees were utterly perplexed and disconcerted, One whom they could not intimidate was in command. Jesus had taken his position as guardian of the temple. Never before had he assumed such kingly authority. Never before had his words and works possessed so great power. He had done marvelous works throughout Jerusalem, but never before in a manner so solemn and impressive. In presence of the people who had witnessed his wonderful works, the priests and rulers dared not show him open hostility. Though enraged and confounded by his answer, they were unable to accomplish anything further that day. The next morning, the Sanhedrin again considered what course to pursue toward Jesus. Three years before, they had demanded a sign of his messiahship. Since that time, he had wrought mighty works throughout the land. He had healed the sick, miraculously fed thousands of people, walked upon the waves, and spoken peace to the troubled sea. He had repeatedly read the hearts of men as an open book. He had cast out demons and raised the dead. The rulers had before them the evidences of his messiahship. They now decided to demand no sign of his authority, but to draw out some admission or declaration by which he might be condemned. Repairing to the temple where he was teaching, they proceeded to question him. 
By what authority doest thou these things? And who gave thee this authority? They expected him to claim that his authority was from God, such an assertion they intended to deny. But Jesus met them with a question apparently pertaining to another subject, and he made his reply to them conditional on their answering this question. The baptism of John, he said. Whence was it? From heaven or of men? The priests saw that they were in a dilemma from which no sophistry could extract them. If they said that John's baptism was from heaven, their inconsistency would be made apparent. Christ would say, Why have ye not then believed on him? John had testified of Christ. Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. If the priests believed John's testimony, how could they deny the Messiahship of Christ? If they declared their real belief that John's ministry was of men, they would bring upon themselves a storm of indignation, for the people believed John to be a prophet. With intense interest, the multitude awaited the decision. They knew that the priests had professed to accept the ministry of John, and they expected them to acknowledge without a question that he was sent from God. But after conferring secretly together, the priests decided not to commit themselves. Hypocritically professing ignorance, they said, We cannot tell. Neither tell I you, said Christ, by what authority I do these things. Scribes, priests, and rulers were all silenced. Baffled and disappointed, they stood with lowering brows, not daring to press further questions upon Christ. By their cowardice and indecision, they had in a great measure forfeited the respect of the people, who now stood by, amused to see these proud, self-righteous men defeated. All these sayings and doings of Christ were important, and their influence was to be felt in an ever-increasing degree after his crucifixion and ascension. Many of those who had anxiously awaited the result of the questioning of Jesus were finally to become his disciples, first drawn toward him by his words on that eventful day. The scene in the temple court was never to fade from their minds. The contrast between Jesus and the high priest as they talked together was marked. The proud dignitary of the temple was clothed in rich and costly garments. Upon his head was a glittering tiara. His bearing was majestic. His hair and his long flowing beard were silvered by age. His appearance awed the beholders. Before this august personage stood the majesty of heaven without adornment or display. His garments were travel-stained, his face was pale and expressed a patient sadness. Yet written there were dignity and benevolence that contrasted strangely with the proud, self-confident and angry air of the high priest. Many of those who witnessed the words and deeds of Jesus in the temple from that time enshrined him in their hearts as a prophet of God. But as the popular feeling turned in his favor, the hatred of the priests toward Jesus increased. 
the wisdom by which he escaped the snares set for his feet being a new evidence of his divinity added fuel to their wrath. In his contest with the rabbis, it was not Christ's purpose to humiliate his opponents. He was not glad to see them in a hard place. He had an important lesson to teach. He had mortified his enemies by allowing them to be entangled in the net they had spread for him. Their acknowledged ignorance in regard to the character of John's baptism gave him an opportunity to speak, and he improved the opportunity by presenting before them their real position, adding another warning to the many already given. What think ye, he said. A certain man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. He answered and said, I will not. But afterward he repented and went. And he came to the second and said, Likewise, And he answered and said, I go, sir, and went not. Whether of them twain did the will of his father? This abrupt question threw his hearers off their guard. They had followed the parable closely and now immediately answered, The first. Fixing his steady eye upon them, Jesus responded in stern and solemn tones, Verily I say unto you, that the publicans and the harlots go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came unto you in the way of righteousness, and ye believed him not. But the publicans and the harlots believed him, and ye, when ye had seen it, repented not afterward, that ye might believe him. The priests and rulers could not but give a correct answer to Christ's question and thus he obtained their opinion in favor of the first son. This son represented the publicans, those who were despised and hated by the Pharisees. The publicans had been grossly immoral. They had indeed been transgressors of the law of God, showing in their lives an absolute resistance to his requirements. They had been unthankful and unholy. When told to go and work in the Lord's vineyard, they had given a contemptuous refusal. But when John came preaching repentance and baptism, the publicans received his message and were baptized. The second son represented the leading men of the Jewish nation. Some of the Pharisees had repented and received the baptism of John, but the leaders would not acknowledge that he came from God. His warnings and denunciations did not lead them to reformation. They rejected the counsel of God against themselves, being not baptized of him. They treated his message with disdain, like the second son who, when called, said, I go, sir, but went not. The priests and rulers professed obedience, but acted disobedience. They made great professions of piety. They claimed to be obeying the law of God, but they rendered only a false obedience. The publicans were denounced and cursed by the Pharisees as infidels, but they showed by their faith and works that they were going into the kingdom of heaven before those self-righteous men who had been given great light, but whose works did not correspond to their profession of godliness. The priests and rulers were unwilling to bear these searching truths. They remained silent. However, hoping that Jesus would say something which they could turn against him. 
but they had still more to bear. Here another parable, Christ said. There was a certain householder which planted a vineyard and hedged it round about and digged a vinepress in it and built a tower and let it out to husbandmen and went into a far country. And when the time of the fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the husbandmen that they might receive the fruits of it. And the husbandman took his servants and beat one, and killed another, and stoned another. Again he sent out other servants more than the first, and they did unto them likewise. But last of all he sent unto them his son, saying, They will reverence my son. But when the husbandman saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir, come, let us kill him, and let us seize on his inheritance." And they caught him, and cast him out of the vineyard, and slew him. When the Lord therefore of the vineyard cometh, what will he do unto those husbandmen? Jesus addressed all the people present, but the priests and rulers answered, He will miserably destroy those wicked men, they said, and will let out his vineyard unto other husbandmen, which shall render him the fruits in their seasons. The speakers had not at first perceived the application of the parable, but they now saw that they had pronounced their own condemnation. In the parable, the householder represented God, the vineyard, the Jewish nation, and the hedge, the divine law, which was their protection. The tower was a symbol of the temple. The Lord of the vineyard had done everything needed for its prosperity. What could have been done more to my vineyard, he says? that I have not done in it. Thus was represented God's unwearied care for Israel. And as the husbandmen were to return to the Lord a due proportion of the fruits of the vineyard, so God's people were to honour him by a life corresponding to their sacred privileges. But as the husbandmen had killed the servants whom the master sent to them for fruit, so the Jews had put to death the prophets whom God sent to call them to repentance. Messenger after messenger had been slain. Thus far the application of the parable could not be questioned, and in what followed it was not less evident. In the beloved son whom the Lord of the vineyard finally sent to his disobedient servants, and whom they seized and slew, the priests and rulers saw a distinct picture of Jesus and his impending fate. Already they were planning to slay him whom the Father had sent to them as a last appeal. In the retribution inflicted upon the ungrateful husbandman was portrayed the doom of those who should put Christ to death. Looking with pity upon them, the Saviour continued, Did ye never read in the Scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? The same is become the head of the corner." This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvellous in our eyes. Therefore say I unto you, The kingdom of God shall be taken from you, and given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof. And whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. This prophecy the Jews had often repeated in the synagogues, applying it to the coming Messiah. Christ was the cornerstone of the Jewish economy and of the whole plan of salvation. This foundation stone, the Jewish builders, the priests and rulers of Israel, were now rejecting. The Saviour called their attention to the prophecies that would show them their danger. 
By every means in his power he sought to make plain to them the nature of the deed they were about to do. And his words had another purpose. In asking the question, When the Lord therefore of the vineyard cometh, what will he do unto those husbandmen? Christ designed that the Pharisees should answer as they did. He designed that they should condemn themselves. His warnings, failing to arouse them to repentance, would seal their doom, and he wished them to see that they had brought ruin on themselves. He designed to show them the justice of God in the withdrawal of their national privileges, which had already begun and which would end not only in the destruction of their temple and their city, but in the dispersion of the nation. The hearers recognized the warning, but notwithstanding the sentence they themselves had pronounced, the priests and rulers were ready to fill out the picture by saying, This is the heir, come, let us kill him. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitude, for the public sentiment was in Christ's favor. In quoting the prophecy of the rejected stone, Christ referred to an actual occurrence in the history of Israel. The incident was connected with the building of the first temple. While it had a special application at the time of Christ's first advent and should have appealed with special force to the Jews, it was also a lesson for us. When the Temple of Solomon was erected, the immense stones of the walls and the foundation were entirely prepared at the quarry. After they were brought to the place of building, not an instrument was to be used upon them. The workmen had only to place them in position. For use in the foundation, one stone of unusual size and peculiar shape had been brought. But the workmen could find no place for it and would not accept it. It was an annoyance to them, as it lay unused in their way. Long it remained a rejected stone. But when the builders came to the lane of the corner, they searched for a long time to find a stone of sufficient size and strength and of the proper shape to take that particular place and bear the great weight which would rest upon it. Should they make an unwise choice for this important place, the safety of the entire building would be endangered. They must find a stone capable of resisting the influence of the sun, of frost, and of tempest. Several stones had at different times been chosen, but under the pressure of immense weights they had crumbled to pieces. Others could not bear the test of the sudden atmospheric changes, but at last attention was called to the stone so long rejected. It had been exposed to the air, to sun and storm, without revealing the slightest crack. The builders examined this stone. It had borne every test but one. If it could bear the test of severe pressure, they decided to accept it for the cornerstone. The trial was made. The stone was accepted. Brought to its assigned position and found to be an exact fit. In prophetic vision, Isaiah was shown that this stone was a symbol of Christ. He says, Sanctify the Lord of hosts himself, and let him be your fear, and let him be your dread, and he shall be for a sanctuary, but for a stone of stumbling and for a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel, 
for a gin and for a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many among them shall stumble and fall and be broken and be snared and be taken. Carried down in prophetic vision to the first advent, the prophet is shown that Christ is to bear the trials and tests of which the treatment of the chief cornerstone in the temple of Solomon was symbolic. Therefore thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation a stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He that believeth shall not make haste. In infinite wisdom, God chose the foundation stone and laid it himself. He called it a sure foundation. The entire world may lay upon it their burdens and griefs. It can endure them all. With perfect safety, they may build upon it. Christ is a tried stone. Those who trust in him, he never disappoints. He has borne every test. He has endured the pressure of Adam's guilt and the guilt of his posterity, and has come off more than conqueror of the powers of evil. He has borne the burdens cast upon him by every repenting sinner. In Christ, the guilty heart has found relief. He is the sure foundation. All who make them their dependence rest in perfect security. In Isaiah's prophecy, Christ is declared to be both a sure foundation and a stone of stumbling. The Apostle Peter, writing by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, clearly shows to whom Christ is a foundation stone and to whom a rock of offense. If so be ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious, to whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious, Ye also, as lively stones, are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Sion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you therefore which believe he is precious, But unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient. To those who believe, Christ is the sure foundation. These are they who fall upon the rock and are broken. Submission to Christ and faith in him are here represented. To fall upon the rock and be broken is to give up our self-righteousness and to go to Christ with the humility of a child, repenting of our transgressions and believing in his forgiving love. And so also it is by faith and obedience that we build on Christ as our foundation. Upon this living stone, Jews and Gentiles alike may build, This is the only foundation upon which we may securely build. It is broad enough for all and strong enough to sustain the weight and burden of the whole world. And by connection with Christ, the living stone, all who build upon this foundation become living stones. 
Many persons are by their own endeavors hewn, polished, and beautified, but they cannot become living stones because they are not connected with Christ. Without this connection, no man can be saved. Without the life of Christ in us, we cannot withstand the storms of temptation. Our eternal safety depends upon our building upon the sure foundation. Multitudes are today building upon foundations that have not been tested. When the rain falls and the tempest rages and the floods come, their house will fall because it is not founded upon the eternal rock, the chief cornerstone, Christ Jesus. To them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, Christ is a rock of offense. But the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner. Like the rejected stone, Christ in his earthly mission had borne neglect and abuse. He was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He was despised and we esteemed him not. But the time was near when he would be glorified. By the resurrection from the dead, he would be declared the Son of God with power. At his second coming, he would be revealed as Lord of heaven and earth. Those who were now about to crucify him would recognize his greatness. Before the universe, the rejected stone would become the head of the corner. And on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. The people who rejected Christ were soon to see their city and their nation destroyed. Their glory would be broken and scattered as the dust before the wind. And what was it that destroyed the Jews? It was the rock which, had they built upon it, would have been their security. It was the goodness of God despised, the righteousness spurned, the mercy slighted. Men set themselves in opposition to God, and all that would have been their salvation turned to their destruction. All that God ordained unto life, they found to be unto death. In the Jews, crucifixion of Christ was involved the destruction of Jerusalem. The blood shed upon Calvary was the weight that sank them to ruin for this world and for the world to come. So it will be in the great final day, when judgment shall fall upon the rejectors of God's grace. Christ, their rock of offense, will then appear to them as an avenging mountain. The glory of his countenance, which to the righteous is life, will be to the wicked a consuming fire. Because of love rejected, grace despised, the sinner will be destroyed. By many illustrations and repeated warnings, Jesus showed what would be the result to the Jews of rejecting the Son of God. In these words, he was addressing all in every age who refused to receive him as their Redeemer. Every warning is for them. The desecrated temple, the disobedient son, the false husbandman, the contemptuous builders have their counterpart in the experience of every sinner. Unless he repent, the doom which they foreshadowed will be his.
Join us next time as Nancy Hamilton Myers continues her dramatised audiobook, The Desire of Ages, written by Ellen G. White. This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.